but I knew that it was changing me. It was fashioning me into the artist that I always wanted to be. From Steppenwolf Theatre Company in Chicago, Illinois. There's nowhere on earth that I'd rather be than in this rehearsal room. This is Half Hour. Friends, how you doing? Back at it. Hey, guys. Uh, This week on Half Hour, we've got me, Caroline Neff. James Vincent Meredith. And me, Cliff Chamberlain. So, Cliff, all of our guests are very special guests, but we have a differently special guest on this episode, yeah? Yeah, we have my friend, Leslie Odom Jr. What? How did that happen? (laughs) We've been so fortunate to be able to reach out to artists that have worked with us or are in our ensemble or are, are some somewhere in our sphere. And Leslie, other than being an icon of stage and screen, isn't really. So Cliff, can you give us a little background on how you know Leslie and how he ended up on our podcast? Yeah, Steppenwolf. That's how. Um, I mean, along with Leslie being awesome and being a, a buddy of mine, which I'm really lucky just to sort of be able to say that, the story starts at Steppenwolf. Um, Sarah Isaacson, who's a casting director, she's now out in L.A., used to work at Steppenwolf. She's from Chicago. So she is a huge fan of Steppenwolf and Steppenwolf uh, artists. And she comes back to Chicago a lot to see plays. And she saw Clybourne Park. And she called me in for this pilot called State of Affairs, which was uh, a Catherine Heigl vehicle for NBC and uh, directed by Joe Carnahan. And um I somehow was one of those things, right? I somehow booked this pilot and Leslie Odom Jr. was in this pilot and I met him in New York and we sort of connected right off the bat. We sort of had that one of those sort of instant connections, right? And um, and it, my journey with State of Affairs was really fun. The show got picked up to series. It sort of, in a lot of ways, changed the trajectory of my life. How, how long ago was that? We shot the pilot of State of Affairs in 2014. I think it was in April or May, but I won't. Uh, you know, I won't spoil the ending, at least of the story for Leslie, about his journey with State of Affairs. It's pretty amazing. So yeah, I know him and he's here through Sarah Isaacson. Sarah, we actually talk about, for anybody listening later, um, she and I went to see a concert of Leslie's uh, together. And we talk, I talk about the last time I saw him was backstage with Sarah, his wife, Nicolette Robinson, who's also there, who sang a song with him. And she's a great artist in her own right. Um, so anyways, yeah. It all comes back to Steppenwolf. I just find it really cool because this is a guest who, you know, I've admired their work, but I don't know them. I've never met them. I've never met uh, Leslie. So it's kind of neat to really actually see this and experience this interview, just like any of our other listeners. Like I'm learning just as much as they are uh, as you go through this, because uh, I don't have a relationship with him. So it's it's really great to, to listen to this, and, and I'm looking forward to it. Is there anything else we should know before we press play? No, I don't think so. I mean, I had a, a great time talking to him, and I just think he's one of my favorite people. So Cool. I can't wait. Then here it is, folks. This is Cliff Chamberlain with Leslie Odom Jr. Company, this is your half-hour call. Half-hour till the top of the show. Half-hour. Please sign in if you have not already done so. Half-hour. I think the last time that I saw you in person... It was backstage at your concert yeah. with our good friend Sarah Isaacson, who I, I, it was the reason that we know each other. 
And you know that I am such a musical fan of yours that I listened to Simply Christmas, your album, like in June. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'll just text you and be like, hey, just listening to uh, your album, <laughs> Christmas album. It's June. It means the world. Every time I get one of those texts, it makes me so happy. Well, I just, I love your music and I loved seeing that concert. And I just wanted to hear, check this out. I've got your book. Oh, man. Which is beautiful. And one of the things in your book you talk about when it comes to music specifically, that it was something that you wanted to do when the phone wasn't ringing. Right. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be a musician, a live performer, and a a writer of music and your own music? Yeah. It's my freedom. Um, or it's, it's, it is the first way that I found freedom. It is the quickest way to my freedom. I'm trying to find freedom in other ways as well. But yeah, music was the thing that I didn't need someone to call me to ask me to do. I didn't need permission to sing. Um, and when I say sing, let me be clear, you know, to, to make a living as a singer, to make a living Mm. as a musician, I could scare up opportunities, um, pretty quickly as a musician. And, and, and that was a revelation to me. I write about in the book. I mean, that really wasn't something that I was doing in LA for a decade. So it was really, uh, once I realized that it, uh, was my ticket to a certain kind of freedom and a certain kind of autonomy right after Hamilton, that was the first thing that I wanted to do that. I want, I wanted to invest in myself in that way because I remember, you know, I remember what it was like to feel like I was sitting on my couch and waiting mm. for somebody to put me in. I was, you know, put me in coach. Mm. So after Hamilton, I just wanted to hopefully change my life a little bit and, um, you know, put myself in. And when did you start singing? When did you know, were you a kid when you, when you realized, oh my gosh, I'm good at this or I love this. When was it for you? Um, I, I wasn't a, I knew that I wasn't a bad singer, you know, when I was a kid, eight, nine, 10 years old, I was in the chorus and, um, I, I was, uh, I could match pitch and I could, you know, I had a pretty nice tone, you know, but I, I didn't think that I was all that special, you know, even in hindsight, I don't, I don't think that I was all that special. I think that I, um, practiced more, you know, mm. I think that I ended up just, I, I ended up just working on it for many more hours than some other kids, you know, while, while they were, um, in the science lab, literally, <laughs> or, uh, or maybe practicing piano or trombone or something, you know, I was singing. And so those hours of practice ended up making me a, a whole lot better at something that at the start, I think, you know, I was pretty average. Hmm. Did you have anybody at that time that either recognized, um, an ability in you that you didn't know was there or that saw something in you? Was there someone back then that, that said, Hey, Leslie, I, listen, I've got something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a, I had a jazz band teacher. That's back when I was, I was trying to play piano. I was trying to play trombone. And, uh, Mr. Johnson kind of knew that I wasn't, um, he had, actually he had better, you know, musicians than than I you know who who took to the instruments faster and easier but he he also saw that singing was you know something that I that I maybe you know was doing a little bit 
better at that time than some of the other kids. So Mr. Johnson put some some really important music into my hands. He introduced me to to uh, Donny Hathaway and Ella Fitzgerald and uh, um, Dizzy Gillespie. And, you know, he, he just was pointing me in the direction of uh, some some tremendous vocalists that he thought I should incorporate into my mm. education, you know, my musical education. So, so for Mr. Johnson was really, um, influential. And that was at the time, I mean, you know, Mr. In a public school, Mr. Mm. Johnson didn't teach any other subject. He was, he wasn't the, the gym teacher, music teacher yet in a public school, Mr. Johnson was just there to teach instruments. He was just there to, he was, he was the music teacher. He was the, um, you know, he, he ran jazz band. He, he was there to, to, any kid that wanted to play an instrument, you know, wow. Mr. Johnson was there to teach him. And that's in Philadelphia? That's right. Okay. Speaking of Philadelphia, this is something that I'm going to say a few words and I want to just hear what you have to say. Okay. The Wink and Rent. Oh, yes. <laughs> can you talk about that? I can. Rent was um, a show that I loved. My favorite quote about art and artists I included in the book is that an artist spends their entire life trying to get back to the place where their heart was first opened up. Mm. And uh, I say the quote so much that now if you Google that quote, it is attributed to me. <laughs> I know I know for a fact that I read that quote in a New York Times article. I cannot find the article, but I, only, yeah. I tell the truth about it because I want the... I want somebody else who read that article to come forward and like, tell me who said it. I, but anyway, so rent was that show, you know, that, that I, I didn't, um, I didn't want to be in show business or on TV and film. I wanted to be in rent. That was as far as I could see. I thought that like, I'll work hard enough. One day I'll get in this show and then I'll do the show. And then, I'll retire. You know, I, I, I like, what else, what else do you, that's it. Yeah. Um, I thought it was a pinnacle. So uh, I, I bought a ticket to see the show while they were in Philadelphia and, uh, act one. I'm just mesmerized by this thing. I know all the words. It's the touring company. You know, I know all the words and I'm, you know, I'm experiencing it. I'm in the room. And, um, so I, I was so taken aback at intermission. I remember I didn't even get out of my seat. I just stayed in my seat and poured through the playbill. I was reading about the, where the perform, who the performers were and, you know, all that stuff. So then act two starts and I'm like, oh, you know, I, I, I can't wait for this thing to start. And I noticed this guy, his name was Chris. I've since told him this story. You know, years later I met him and I told him the story, mm. but he comes out, he, uh, from stage left, big smile on his face, and he winks. And I look to the left, and this girl on stage right, who was also entering, just like kind of smiled and put her head down, like she was, you know, kind of, um, I don't know, covering a laugh or like, but th there was a shared moment. They knew what that meant. I had no idea what that meant, but they, they do. And this was the first time that. I, you know, I had been so enthralled by what was happening on the stage, of course, during act one. This was the first time that, oh, my God, what's happening backstage? Mm. You know, did, did, was that about uh, 
a hangout from last night? Did did they just make a joke? Do they share an apartment together? Do they share a dressing room together? What did I just witness? So for the first time, I was I was um, not only fantasizing and dreaming about being on stage with them, but I wanted to be off stage with them too. I wanted, you know, I wanted to be on the other side of that wink. I wanted to have whatever that that private connection was. You know, it was just like electric for me, and so. Um, yeah, changed my life. Well, I mean, uh, listen, everything about that story, I'm seriously got shivers because even just the sitting in the and reading the playbill and looking like a dedication to knowledge, right? And to like paying attention to where are these people going to school? What have these, what have they done? Like just soaking in all the things or just the ability to recognize that, that wink and to think more about that. To me, I'm like, the ones who really want to have this life mm. want all those things, right? Mm. And so it makes, it, it's not surprising to know that a, a short time later, you were in rent as a <laughs> high school senior. I mean, it blows my mind that you were in rent on Broadway, right? Yeah. In high school. I mean, it, when I was in high school, I was barely able to survive on my high school stage and thinking about <laughs> you on Broadway. It's so awesome. You know, I have to tell you, like, um, there's no great. So, so then, you know, I, so I do rent and I go to college and all that stuff. Um, I, to me, so, so when I become a college student, honest to God, the pinnacle of success that I could see coming from Carnegie Mellon was to like, if I'm really extraordinarily lucky, maybe I'll, maybe I'll get to become a company member in some theater, theater company. You know, I'll, I'll find a little community that, that values me and, and likes my work and gives me work, you know, on, on the regular, like that was like, I just couldn't see higher than that. What is, what is being a company member feel like? For you, what is that like? You're living my dream. Oh well, I mean, it's great. I, I've been, I've been working at Steppenwolf uh, as a non-ensemble member uh, since shortly after I got to Chicago. And for a lot of Chicago theater artists, it is a place that um, we look to with a lot of uh, inspiration and admiration. And so, I'm just, I'm just lucky, I think, to be surrounded by. The mentors, you talk about mentors a lot in your book and teachers, and there are some incredible yeah. teachers in all aspects of what it means to be an artist and what it means to be an artist right now um, mm. with, you know, especially with with how we can be better on stage and off stage. You know, I, right. I know you, you talk in your book, too, about citizenship and compassion right. and what we can do to help. That's right. You know, we... Steppenwolf has a reputation as a place that makes great art, and uh, and I just I have a real um, a real belief that it has a lot of great people too, and so it's nice to be around around that. Yeah, good for you. Okay, so I was fortunate to be in your dressing room for State of Affairs when you were talking about this little project that you wanted to make sure that you were dedicated to. Yeah. In New York at the public and that you just were like, I'm doing this thing and I think it's really special. Uh, and I remember thinking like, oh, that's cool, but we're doing a TV show. And if this TV show gets picked up, like 
is a TV show. And, and at the end of the day, what was that little show? That little show was a little show called the Hamilton mixtape at the time, uh, later known as uh, Hamilton, the American musical and American musical. But, um, I, you might've been, it was the costume designer and then it might've been you or the next one. I was hearing these like gossipy sort of things that if the show, yeah, well, if the show gets picked up, we're going to move to LA production, move right. to LA, which I had no idea about right i only i auditioned for a new york show you know for me at that time a new york tv show was the dream because i know it's difficult but i know there's plenty of actors that work out that uptown downtown thing like you do you shoot your tv show uptown and then you you can make your art downtown so like i was looking for that and um i never would have even i wouldn't have entertained auditioning for the show if i knew that it was going to move to la I, i really didn't know Right. Yeah, I I just wouldn't have put Hamilton in jeopardy because I knew I knew what Hamilton was. Yeah, I took this 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 TV show in New York, but I didn't fucking know that that, that I was choosing. I would have, yeah. you know, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have chosen this. This is wonderful, but I I have something wonderful. So, because you know, like you just talked about, you know, I, I already because I had been doing readings and workshops of Hamilton. I knew, um, I didn't know that the show would be a cultural phenomenon and it's successful in the way that it was but i knew that it was changing me it was fashioning me into the artist that i always wanted to be and so there was just nowhere there's nowhere on earth that i'd rather be than in this rehearsal room well i have since you know sort of used that as a beacon right as something to say like i saw this person know in his heart what was best for him i think and you say in your book too and that like at the end of the day all it took was simply writing you know and just like right you just you simply wrote asked said this is the situation this is why it's important to me and then everybody just said cool go for it yeah then the other problem that a tricky situation that i found myself in is that i had signed a contract and you can't just, you know, you don't just shoot a pilot and go, oh, I don't want to do the series. I mean, it was, it was, it took some doing. It was like, how the hell, once I made the decision, which wasn't easy, but once I, you know, really knew I, I got to get out of this thing, it's like, well, how do I get out of this thing? And after, I mean, weeks and weeks of like, do I get lawyers? Do I try to get my agents to, I mean, you know, all these ridiculous scenarios. Um, it was kind of, uh, revelation when when it's like okay where do we begin well how about we ask first before we do anything else how about i just ask and joe carnahan you know what a gentleman joe carnahan and who was the creator of our show and bob greenblatt who was the president of nbc at the time um just just listened to my my heart and we're like sure we'll let you go look i mean we we think this is a little crazy you want to go do an off-broadway show rather than our tv show are you are you sure okay (laughs) and that was that company this is your 15 minute call 15 minutes till the top of the show 15 minutes 15 15 i know you've probably talked about it a lot but as an actor who just would love to hear what was it like to play burr for so many performances and and in such a phenomenon oh um ideal you know it was the ideal in every way um 
Lin Manuel has a has a tendency to to create the ideal, you know, wherever he goes. Um, it was, you know, the, the 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 rehearsal room was conducive for the kind of work that you saw on that stage. You know, people were doing brave, exciting, daring work um, because we were safe and we were encouraged to. And Lynn gave us um, the confidence of brilliant material. So, um, yeah, I knew every second, you know, I wasn't a kid. I don't know when we went to Broadway, by the time we got to Broadway, I think I was 34 years old or something like that. So um, I, I was just very aware you know, every moment, how lucky I was, what a blessing it was, what a gift that this role found its way to me and that I found my way to it. You know, because the the even sort of weirder backstory is that I, I saw the very first reading of the Hamilton mixtape at Vassar. I mean, I was in the audience. How many I, people I, in the audience? A hundred. <sighs> you, anybody, anybody that's gone to Vassar knows that that it's a black box theater, and they were doing this thing called the Hamilton Mixtape. Nicolette happened to be up there working, so I, I happened to be there on the weekend, and um, I just rem- I, so you know I, I remember what it was like to hear that opening, or satisfied, or wait for it for the first time, or Dear Theodosia for the first time. Being in the audience and I never in a million years thought that I would be in the show. But when I got the email from Lynn asking me to be a part of it, I knew I knew what that opportunity was. So, yeah, anyway, getting to do it on Broadway, I never one day, not one single day uh, took it for granted or didn't know what I had. Mm. And I've I've heard you say this, that um, one of the things you wanted in playing Burr was to be surprised by the ending uh, every show. What do you mean by that? Um, I mean that uh, ours, it's a real classic tragedy. You know, you go see Oedipus Rex, you know how that's going to end. You go see a great production of Romeo and Juliet or Medea. You know how these things are going to end. But in a fantastic production, you forget. Mm. We watch our favorite movies again and again. We know how it's going to end but you know in a story well told you allow yourself to forget you suspend your disbelief even as an audience member you know so um that's what i wanted i mean you know lynn wrote the end of the end of (laughs) the first number is and i'm the damn fool that shot him you know so Mm -hmm. just in case you don't know (laughs) uh, let me let me give away the ending right now um and uh yeah, I wanted to take the ride every night. You know, I kind of thought about it. I was real meta. There was um, some some nights I would, um, I would go out there and actively work. You know, there was like I I could sometimes imagine that show is like a a a hell for Burr. You know, it's a hell for him. Like he has to do this. I I have to do this performance i have to present this thing every night it this is i can't move on until i find the moment until i find the reason uh that it's gone this way until i can figure out a way to change it you know and i essentially what am i trying to say what i'm trying to say is like i I desperately wanted it to end differently Mm. every night i wanted to change it you know like that that's what i'm up there sweating and working for either i'm going to show you guys that you know that 
here it is and there that that's the moment that's what you know or i'm going to i was thinking of like a divorced couple you know if you could show a couple on on the day of their wedding a picture of what they're going to look like on the day of their divorce Hmm. 15 years down the road they wouldn't believe it they wouldn't believe Hmm. it you'd have to prove it and then look and then then there was this moment and then this moment and then this moment anyway uh so that that's all i meant it was my job it was my job to make the audience forget where it was going and so i did my best to forget where it was going well i think that's those are words to live by for any actor in any performance just be surprised by the ending you know, just don't pre-plan and go in with an open road. Um, I want to ask you about One Night in Miami. Sure. First off, I watched it thinking, my goodness, everyone in this movie is amazing. <laughs> and these four guys are a quartet that is just firing on all cylinders. Um, but because I know you, I you know, I've watched you with a certain amount of awe. And I thought... Leslie is putting it all together in this, his theater, theatrical work, because you could feel like it's a play, his music, his, his film work, it's all here. Can you talk to me just about what it was like making that movie? Uh, a dream, you know, I, uh, a scary dream, but a dream, you know. I, I, Why scary? I, because I know that you talk about spectacular failure. Why scary? Well, because it was just the, the shoes were the shoes were awfully big and they weren't coming to me saying, hey, Leslie, we want to play. We want you to play Sam Cooke a year from now. We're going to give you all the tools that you need to succeed and support you. You know, it's the way it often is. You know, I'm still not quite a first call guy in Hollywood. So they had lost somebody. Maybe they might have lost more than one person, but they lost their first choice. Mm-hmm. And so they're scrambling to find a replacement for whoever the actor was that was cast first and the movie shoots very soon. And that's a lot of work because I know on some level, this is going to be about verisimilitude. This is going to be, be about how close you can come to, to Sam cook to this man that we revere. You know, I know that um, he's beloved the world over, but in, in the black community, you know, Sam Cooke is a Sam Cooke and James Brown and Prince and Michael Jackson. There are some people that we, you know, we're protective over. There's not a whole I've never seen Sam Cooke depicted in film at all. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be the first. Ah, nah. So mm. um, anyway, but uh, so that's why it was a scary dream. But it, like what you just said, it, it took me a second, but I did realize too, that this was an opportunity at least to put it all together, to put the music and the stage work and the, my exploration in film all together. And Regina was a wonderful director the, you know, the, the first way she took care of us was to, to give us each other. You know, I had such mm. wonderful actors to work off of Kingsley Benadir as Malcolm, I think is astonishing. And Eli Garay as, as young Cassius Clay is something really special. Uh, those, those gentlemen too, they had just Im- impossible shoes to fill, not only in the men, the actual men, but also they're in Denzel and Will Smith's shadow immediately, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So right. it was, it was just, it was heady, you know, it was like, this could really, uh, you know, not work. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but I just, it was really inspiring in your book. And I just know it's the type of person you are, but um, citizenship, compassion, being led by love, 
Can you speak to just sort of uh, how you feel about those things sort of leading uh, yourself forward or all of us forward? Hmm. Well, you know, especially as a as a parent now, you know, it's one of the things that parenthood gives me, you know, it's that thing of your, the world is not uh, a gift to you from the generations before the world is on loan to you mm. from the generations after. Um, mm. So, yeah, I just try to think about how to, man, how do I just leave it a little better? How do I leave my, my little corner of the world better for, for my kids and, and the generation, uh, you know, the generations right behind me, how do I make, how do I make sure that they, um, that I'm a link in the chain, you know, uh, cause it's not, it's not just about my kids. It's about the artists that are behind me. How do I keep them inspired? What do I want to pass down to them? Um, cause people, those of us that are lucky enough to get to do this, I think almost to a person, you know, there, there, there are some generous souls that poured into us. Right. And, and there's some generous souls that really, um, passed it down and passed it on. Mm. You know, who spent who spent hours, um, extra hours with us in a rehearsal room, uh, you know, that they, they, they weren't unlogged, unpaid, you know, just like just passing it on. Yeah. Um, so just trying to just trying to make sure that I that I do that. I have a real interest in that, you know, making sure that I love what you said about the company reckoning with, you know, what is required of us today as artists? Mm. What is our responsibility today? Yeah in what ways are we on the front line, you know? Yeah. So our show is called half hour and it's based on sort of that magical amount of time, um, before a show begins. And we ask all of our guests this and I'll ask you, okay. what is your half hour routine? I really like to my, that half hour is all about presence. So I, I don't like, um, if I, I don't like ritual, but that is my ritual because, you know, ritual is like the thing of like sort of shoving myself into whatever I was feeling yesterday. Like, you know, instead of using that half hour to like, you know, figure out how to make the same sculpture or something, you know what I mean? Like, I'm like, mm -hmm. I don't know what this goes. I don't know. Who am I right now? What am I feeling? What am I in need of? Do I need to pick me up? Do I need to bring myself down? Um, am I feeling, am I hungry? Am I, am I not hungry at all? Do I, do I need to kick it with a friend right now? Do I need to talk? You know what I'm saying? So like my half hour, um, is all about presence. You know, mm -hmm. I just want to figure out who I am and where I am and what I'm in need of that day. Company, this is your five minute call. Five minutes till the top of the show. Five minutes till the top of the show. This is five. Okay, it's now time for our lightning round. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. What job didn't you get that broke your heart? So many. <laughs> there was a, there was a, <laughs> there was a Wayans Brothers movie. I think it was called Dance Movie. And, um, I, it was the first real risk. I wrote about it in the book, but it was the first real risk that I took in this town. I had an idea about how to approach that material and, and it felt crazy to me and I, and I did it, you know, I was like, courageous enough to do it. And I ended up testing for the film and 
at the test, I found out that I was testing against Damon Wayans Jr. I had no idea that he was in the running too. Who listen, he's gone on to do amazing. He's he's amazing, but um it was the scales were a little <laughs> um <laughs> imbalanced. But um I was brokenhearted because I wish that I'd known. I I kind of felt like um, you know, like I was taken for a ride a little bit. Right. And I thought that that movie was going to make me a star, you know. What animal do you most identify with? A uh, lion or or cat, big cat. What's your most prized piece of play memorabilia? I haven't kept a ton, but a and a fan my my first piece of fan art came from doing Hamilton at the Public. And there was some there's something about that that holy sort of circle of inspiration like if you if you make something as an artist and it inspires another artist to make something hmm. like that little circle of inspiration is just um i'm always so moved by that so i have it's hanging in my house the little hmm. piece of fan art what artist is giving you the most inspiration right now um i'm loving the work of delano dunn i just i just bought my first piece of real art to hang in my house He's uh, super, super talented. I think he lives in Chicago, too. So look up to Leno. All right. Um, what do you daydream about? A, a lot of times I'm, I'm a lot of times I'm daydreaming about, you know, the not so distant future. I'm daydreaming about I'm sort of, you know, trying to clarify the vision. I'm so I'm I'm trying to, you know, so I'm um, I'm looking at things and. And if it's, if I, if, if I'm not as joyful or if it's, if it's not as, if it's not the vibe that I, that I want to be a part of, I'm trying to figure out what do I need to do to change that? So hmm. a lot of times I'm daydreaming about the not so distant future. Hmm. If you had a superpower, what would it be? Um, if I had a superpower, it would be to eat whatever I wanted and for it to like, if I could eat a a half a dozen donuts and that was the equivalent of 700 crunches, I've, I've thought about this. So that's like, it's all vanity, right? How lame is that? But that's what I want. It's not. That's what I want. I want to be able to eat Thanksgiving dinner and that be like, that, like my body registers is that like you just ran a marathon. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, what is one thing you do every day? I tell my family that I love them every single day. What's your favorite place to unwind in New York? Um, favorite place to unwind in New York was probably the gym. You know, I, f- I found a, a, a small gym that I was going to. It was like my little cheers, you know. It was a place that I went um, where I could kind of put my cell phone away and uh you know get in touch with my body and you yeah. know and then afterwards there was like a, you know the nice sauna and like I was doing cryotherapy there so yeah like it was uh it was my favorite place in New York okay last question my friend yeah. if you were a character in a play yeah. what would your character's description be um <laughs> uh late 30s um wiry and uh, joyful. 
Company, this is your Places Call. Places, please, for the top of the show. Places, please, for the top of the show. Have a good one, everyone. Places, please, places. Wow, wow, wow. That was incredible. <laughs> How lovely. Yeah, it was so good to see him and talk to him. Um, yeah, the best. I um, kept thinking back to that point earlier when he was talking about the wink, um, how, you know, you've got these two people who are on stage and they're on opposite sides and they're just about to go on and they do this little wink thing. And you're like, what's the story behind that? And I've always wondered that too. And you think about it as a performer, those little things that you have backstage, you know, that, you know, you, some that you use, some that you don't use. I just found it really a really neat anecdote, a great story of his, just, just, he's, he's just a great interview. Yeah. It's funny. I related to that a lot because I, um, I've sort of been fascinated just as a performer myself, but seeing it too, like anyone, any actors who were checking in with each other on stage, uh, not, not with the lines or not anything, just checking in across stage, like the little check-ins. I just love doing it. I love seeing my friends, my, colleagues on stage and just a little check-in like we're here together I, it's, one of my, it's one of my favorite things so when i read that in his, his book about him recognizing the wink i was like yes yes yeah i always feel so lucky as an audience member to catch those things and it's usually on my second or third time going to see it yeah when he was talking about the decision to leave state of affairs to go and do hamilton mixtape at the public it really reminded me of one of our earliest, earliest interviews with Willie Peterson, which is mm -hmm. that very like Steppenwolf ethos of like the work is first and where do you feel most passionate because that's the door that you should walk through, not the door people tell you that you should be walking through. Yeah. And it also just shows that there's actually when you're making the right decision for yourself, you really cannot make the wrong one. A hundred percent. And I, I think what's, you know, what I sort of really want to say in that too, is that what you just said, when you're making the decision for yourself, it's right. Because for me, state of affairs was 100 million percent the right decision. It was, I made some great friends. It changed my life. It was an amazing experience. Um, I didn't have, I wasn't working on Hamilton before that, right? Like I didn't have this other passion project that I was invested in, but you hear those stories about those artists who just say, I'm I'm putting it all on me. I'm betting on myself for this thing that's unknown, but that you love. It's a hard thing to do. Um, and I just thought he did it perfectly. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And unfortunately, just like that, we're out of time. Mm. Ugh, again, mm. again. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Half Hour brought to you by Steppenwolf Theater Company. And thanks again to our guest this week. Leslie Odom Jr. Half Hour is produced by Patrick Zakam, mixed and edited by Matthew Chapman. This episode of Half Hour is exclusively sponsored by Sidley Austin LLP. The theme music for Half Hour is by Michael Bodine and Rob Milburn. The voice of this episode's stage manager was Mary Hungerford. Special thanks to Joe Mormon, Madeline Long, Christopher Huizer, Kirsten Adams, Anna Denoya, Aaron Cook, Andrew Samford. And all the folks at Steppenwolf. Follow us on Twitter at SteppenwolfTHTR or on Facebook and Instagram. And you can always get in touch by emailing halfhour at steppenwolf.org. Till next time, this is James Vincent Meredith. Caroline Neff. And Cliff Chamberlain. A lifetime to engage, half hour to places. Uh, so it's 2014. So we, 
uh, I drove, I, I drove out to, um, that doesn't really matter. We did. <laughs> <laughs> it matters to me, Cliff. It matters to me. <laughs>